Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Do you have some big expenses in the near future? Maybe you're moving, applying to residency or fellowship, fixing up your car or home, or starting a new practice. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, residents, and medical students, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. Check out Dr. Doc's personal loan options at drdoclending.com slash DaVinci. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm joined this week by Yanni Tuami, who is the co-founder of a company called I'm Aware based out of Austin, Texas. Uh, so Yanni, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Pleasure to be on your show. Awesome. Well, maybe give the listeners a little bit of background about, I guess, first who you are, kind of where you're, you know, where you went to school, what you studied, maybe some of your previous uh, work experience, and then kind of uh, maybe like a 30,000 foot overview of what I'm aware is. We'll definitely dive more in deep, but just so they kind of have a general working overview. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, my name is Yanni. I uh, grew up in Northern Canada uh, where it snows half the year. Uh, my uh, dad was in construction. My mom was in healthcare as a nurse, um, and I went to school for computer science. So I didn't uh, I didn't spend the first fifteen years of my uh, career in healthcare, but it was uh, you know my my family member getting ill that got me into healthcare, and then the way to do it felt like uh, working with scientists and building a startup. So that became how I'm where you know came to life in 2017. Um, and I'm where offers at-home blood testing, and our goal is to offer tests that have equivalency to gold standard tests like phlebotomy. So, kind of trying to bring real tests out to market, uh, you know, whereas some tests out there are still a little skeptical on the science, right? Yeah, definitely. So, our main most of the tests you guys are working with right now are they like tests that you know you could probably get at any doctor's office, or are they or are you also working on some some ones that maybe aren't as commonly used, if you will? Yeah, so obviously when you're in a home setting, we want to minimize the blood requirements. So, you know, tests like your cholesterol panel or your prediabetes A1C or inflammation or others uh, actually only need about three to five drops of blood compared to going to the doctor's office and pulling, you know, that entire vial. So we definitely have that menu of standard type tests. And then, uh, you know, we're starting to get into more advanced biomarkers. Um, for example, we were... The first company, I guess, to say, bringing out a, a test for at-home testing for lipoprotein A, which is a hidden uh, heart risk factor. It's It's got genetic kind of components to it. And one in five people ha have elevated um, LPA that is worth considering. Um, so, yeah, we're getting into some of those, you know, more advanced biomarkers. And as you probably know, there's hundreds, if not maybe even thousands of data points that we can measure. So, our job at Imore is going to be to keep pushing the limits of of what has been or what can be testable at home. That's really awesome, and I'm excited to to hear more about that. But I definitely I want to ask you about so you you know train in computer science, and then now you're 
you know, working in a, in a health uh, startup, like you said, I guess maybe tell us, I've, I've heard you talk about your story about your brother, how that kind of really inspired this and kind of really in, in some ways shifted gears for you. Yeah. Uh, well, nobody likes to have a family member get ill and, you know, there's certainly nothing uh, unique about my situation. I, you know, as I've learned, uh, a lot of people suffer with sort of conditions that people don't know about until it's too late. Right. So my, yeah, my middle brother had a cancer that, uh, we discovered way too late and thank God my mom was in healthcare. So she actually was the one to diagnose him um, after nine months of doctors misdiagnosing him. And, you know, I, I'm not really trying to at all uh, fault the doctors here. Sometimes they're working with the tools and, you know, the five minutes a year that they get with a patient. Right. But um, yeah, it was that situation that led me, you know, kind of serendipitously to meet a doctor who had uh debunked Theranos, who had discovered the PSA biomarker, who had been working in small volume blood testing, you know, think of one drop or less. And that was the moment where, you know, I felt like that type of PhD and, and the focus that they had on small volume blood testing, plus my consumer product knowledge in building out user experience tools, felt like we could merge those two and create a prevention oriented at-home screening platform. So yeah, pretty much did the quit my job that day um, and got to work with some really brilliant scientists in bringing out this platform. That's amazing. So I'm curious what, with your brother, were there, I imagine you probably ended up finding and probably in the end that there may have been ways you could have found this earlier. And maybe that was kind of at least part of the, the thought of, you know, going in this direction, I would imagine. Yeah, it's funny hindsight. I, or I guess it's not so funny, but yeah, definitely hindsight was there looking back. Uh, there were, some signs, some symptoms, and certainly, you know, blood work would have indicated that, you know, even three months beforehand, that there were some things going on uh, with the immune system and stuff like that, that uh, the doctors who then took over his situation once he was in ICU, they were running blood tests twice a day, um, looking at all kinds of biomarkers. And they were able to look at that and say, hey, you know, these numbers here sort of popped up recently, but these numbers here, you, you might have found them as an early indicator, even three or six months ago. So it was interesting to me that the, the doctors that were charged with healthcare or the prevention of illness didn't quite have the same tests that the sick care doctors, the ones who are now caring for the illness, they could run anything and everything. Um, so it was, it, that was sort of a motivator for me to say, well, why can't we take the tests that are run in this setting and start to bring them into the prevention setting? And, and so that the rest is history from there. Yeah, that's an interesting point you bring about the the ICU specifically. I mean, really, anytime you're in the hospital, but especially the ICU, like there is so much data that is being collected on an ICU patient. You know, from labs, at least often more than once a day, as you as you mentioned. And then, you know, if they're on a ventilator, the ventilator settings, you know, they're getting imaging, all this different data. But like you said, it's and and unfortunately, in many cases, it's it's either too late or it's you know, it's kind of. Uh, you know, you want makes you wonder if you'd had even half this level of data earlier, would this have, you know, led to, you know, maybe an earlier intervention that could have made a difference. Um, so I think I imagine that's also kind of what sparked this thought as well, which is pretty, pretty cool. I guess, how, how did you get in contact with this uh, physician scientist who had debunked Theranos? That's uh, and invented the PSA marker. That's a, that's a, those are some pretty remarkable uh, achievements there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to call it serendipity or the universe, uh, things that you just, you know, um, sometimes can't explain, but uh, I was working in a digital consulting firm and we were building some, you know, really cool digital tools for banks and insurance and, um, 
they this doctor actually had wanted to work with this firm that we were at to start to create like an education platform on digital and mobile to help people understand um, that they can screen for tests, not to get diagnosed for things, but for screening. And so I actually um, took that you know proposal on to go and meet this doctor and understand what he was trying to get accomplished. And really, it was the moment I was in his lab and and I did that PSA test from phlebotomy and and from finger stick and experienced what it is that they were building and how, you know, the one drop of blood from the finger stick uh, could quantitatively match the same data that was coming from phlebotomy on that uh, custom ELISA. I learned all these things like in that one hour and I'm like, oh my God, this is what's happening in a lab that nobody really knows about. So that was, uh, that was where I felt it was my job to then, you know, kind of bring the product and customer experience angle to that and, and help them scale that message out, not just by creating education, but by actually bringing that test into the home. Um, so yeah, basically we talked about it for an hour and the guy's like, yeah, it sounds like, you know what you're talking about. I'm like, sounds like, you know what you're talking about. So <laughs> it was, uh, it was a match made in heaven and the rest is, uh, you know, then we went and did all the tough stuff, the fundraising and, and all the rest. So. That's really interesting. I mean, from a your finger stick, so kind of it's similar to like how patients have been measuring their, their blood glucose at home. Like, like if they're a diabetic, that's, that's amazing. Just even like a small drop of blood. Yeah. You know, as you know, you know, these patients in the ICU or even inpatient, they get so many sticks and so many draws. And I mean, it's some people, patients even get anemia from it because they've we've drawn so much blood from them. So it's amazing that you could, uh, get the same kind of, uh, results, if you will, from just the small amount, uh, like, you know, what diabetics have been doing for years. Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, most people don't realize this, but when they, uh, started building out all the genetic tests, like 23andMe and others, um, the technology and the chips had the same kind of explosive growth, like computer chips did when we went, you know, from 386 to 486 to Pentium and all that. And every year it seemed like it was getting twice as fast. So, the information that could be pulled from blood and the amount of blood that was needed to pull that information was, you know, evolutionary, just increasing every 18 months. And so you didn't really need these big vials of blood anymore. Um, by as early as like 2017, you could get by with microliters or, or drops. You know, that I hate to say that the Theranos vision was, was sort of there. Um, yes, a couple drops of blood has a lot of information, but instead of trying to measure a thousand biomarkers like they had claimed, you know, we can measure two, three, four or five of them right now. Um, it's definitely, you know, in my mind, something that's going to be possible one day uh, as we get more and more advanced chips. But you don't just go from kind of zero to 100 in, in healthcare like that. But we are making those progressive steps every year to two where you're able to analyze so much more information from that much less blood. So. Pretty soon, you know, if, as the consumerization of healthcare takes over, we should be demanding um, less and less blood be taken, you know, less and less phlebotomy and more types of tests that can be run, you know, with uh, less painful and less invasive methods. That's awesome. So I guess maybe walk us through it a little bit. Who, who's your kind of main end user right now? Is it directly to patients themselves or is it also, you know, like clinics and hospital systems or and then... I guess walk us through it. Like they obviously they they take you know a sample of blood and then they kind of pick what what tests they want to do. So maybe walk us through how how that the customer experience aspect works. Yeah, um, you know this was something where I credit some really amazing business advisors uh, that helped us along this journey. We started out as DTC originally, and um, so we were selling tests directly to consumer and offering that physician oversight model. 
to help those patients that might have had questions. But, um, you know, DTC is a tough space. You're paying a lot of money to Google and Facebook and ads and things like that. You're trying to get the attention of a customer. And then you don't know if that customer will ever come back and buy your test. So, you know, we kind of quickly learned that there's no way this business is going to survive if we're paying, you know, $100 for ads to sell a $79 test. And that's kind of the economics on it, right? So what we did was during COVID, we started partnering with businesses and we offered COVID testing. And over the past two years now, um, businesses, digital health companies that, you know, offer virtual at-home visits, they want at-home testing so they don't have to do a visit then send the person off to a lab, you know, patient service center, then come back and do another visit. They just want it all to be at home. So it's actually been more of, uh, you know, kind of timed with COVID that we actually also evolved into B2B. And so now we offer at-home testing integrated, you know, to white label kits and full APIs and HIPAA compliant and SOC2 compliant, you know, capabilities uh, to allow their patients to receive this at-home testing brand on their platform. So that's where we've really seen the, the biggest growth now. And I think the, the best part about that too is wrapping it around a clinical protocol provided by, you know, a physician group that's helping you reduce heart disease or, a, you know, a, a group that's helping you maintain wellness means you actually have professional healthcare support to help you action those results, right? And so I think for us, that's very important. We want to offer the best tests, but it was really hard to also offer the best advice after. And so, you know, we feel really good about partnering in that sense, instead of trying to be the one-stop shop for everybody. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I mean, that was def- that seems like a, it was a very smart move to partner with essentially like telemedicine providers, especially during the, the pandemic when people are still trying to provide good care, but you need, you're, you're limited as far as if you're if, with a telemedicine visit um, in that regard. Now I'm curious, do you guys do all the testing in-house or is that something that you use a third party for uh, to run your, your lab tests for? Yeah, we, um we, we had some anti-Theranos kind of, you know, um I'll, I'll call them pillars in the way we built our business. And so what we didn't want to kick off with was owning our own lab, because of course that creates that sort of black box experience. And we didn't want to be in a situation where, um, you know, we just weren't trusted. So we actually started off working with some CLIA certified labs and then quickly learned that, you know, not even all labs are created equal. Um, So we started to, you know, really accelerate the types of data that we wanted. We worked with our labs to up their game in essence so that we looked at labs that were CLIA, that were CAP accredited, that's even a higher standard. And then we did additional even validation studies above and beyond to make sure that the labs knew that how they could process the samples collected at home and to again, continue to verify that it matched phlebotomy. And uh, so we created a lab network of five trusted labs. They get audited you know, three, four, five times a year um, by either CAP group or, or the CMS federal government. And now that we feel really good about where we're at with this, um, we've built some great lab partnerships along the way. We have a business decision to decide if we want to either tighten up in partnership or, you know, become exclusive with each other or maybe even, you know, build our own lab. But, um, you know, right now we're focused on really just building out uh, a test menu and, and the data behind it to make sure our partners can have that trust in our platform. Very cool. That's, uh, I guess that's probably a great way to integrate in like quality control as well. Like you said, to make sure that, you know, that the labs are accurate, everything's run, you know, in, in the a proper fashion, in the lab, just having 
like you said, kind of professional partners that do that. Um, I'm curious from a, a standpoint of uh, going directly to co- the consumer. Can someone, if without even seeing a physician, go on your website and and you know, let's say they are worried about their heart their heart risk, or and they're like, hey, I don't have time, or my PCP can't see me for six months, which, as you know, is becoming unfortunately a more and more common thing these days. Uh, can they kind of help? It seems like it could help someone take control of their own health, if you will. Yeah, we are seeing kind of three audiences outside of the the B2B types of people, you know, that come to us for their communities. One is the people who are underinsured or not insured. Um, It's pretty staggering to me that if you want a lipid panel and you go to any one of the big hospital systems, you're paying between $500 and $800 cash pay for that panel. And we offer the same exact test again with that Venus to cap data that ensures quality uh, for $79. So, you know, there's a lot of people who are saying, hey, I was laid off or I can't believe that my copay is more expensive than your test. Why wouldn't I just get it with you guys? Um, another is definitely, uh, I think of even like our celiac disease tests, a number of customers who are like, uh, my doctor refuses to test me for celiac disease because, you know, they just don't believe it. And so I just want to know for sure. So they will go ahead and order that test. And of course, we offer the 50 state and regulatory approved platform capabilities, you know, uh, physician oversight and the reports that have been, you know, vetted and reviewed by physicians so that, you know, the information that's presented is accurate. And then you can take that result to your doctor. And the number of times, again, with celiac disease specifically, where patients would go and say, hey, look at this. I told you I, you know, I had a celiac gene in my family and it's sure enough, I have this elevated TTG biomarker you need to help me with that. Right. So yeah, those are kind of the scenarios uh, where we see a lot of direct to consumer application. Interesting. So I guess in that, in those regard, who reviews their, like if they, like you said, if they want to have like a physician opinion, do you guys have physicians that, that work at the company that would do that? Or, or uh, is that something you, you, you kind of refer them to? We refer, so we use uh, independent physicians. Again, we don't want to be in a situation where I'm where doctors are ordering I'm more labs and then recommending more I'm more labs. Um, there are there are companies who have gotten in trouble of being you know basically lab ordered physicians and and so that's definitely not on the right side of uh, of regulatory guidance. So we use independent doctors. Uh, we use other telemedicine networks. We refer uh, even customers who come to our website to go to some of our partner offerings where they can get the test and that holistic uh, educational approach. So I want to uh, I want to ask you about you know I guess the reimbursement aspect of this. So it sounds like it's for the most part, especially if a consumer buys it, it's it's you know essentially cash. Like they they pay directly out of pocket for it. If they if they do it through like a telemedicine visit, do they have insurance covered, or is that still is it still are you still working in a like completely out of pocket payment model right now? Yeah, for this year, uh, we felt that it was just easier to bring in a cash pay model. Uh, with some employers uh, that we're in with their plans, obviously the employer behaves like the payer. So those employees get the test for free and it's just part of their you know, employer benefits program. We are seeing movement towards home testing being approved by insurance with CPT codes for reimbursement. Um, so I think you'll see you know, us and, and other at-home testing companies who sort of pass the mustard be able to offer insurance covered at-home tests uh, probably much more broadly next year. And uh, that we're definitely going to be going, you know, to help that marketplace because 
our our tests are much more affordable than cash pay uh, equivalents, and we think we can offer that kind of you know price and, and convenience benefit to patients who are on insurance too. So. That's interesting. Yeah, it sounds similar to the the cost plus drugs uh, company that Mark Cuban started. Uh, that, as you know, I've I talked with him about a few months ago. So that's that's pretty cool. I think he said the same thing. Where it was, you know, at least for now they weren't dealing with insurance because it's just so much more complicated. And I think that was something they're hoping to maybe roll out down the future. But it sounds like kind of this, you know, labs drugs kind of the same type of thing with dealing with insurance. Well, it's funny you say that because I, I literally, after I, after I chatted with you, I was like, Hey, Mark Cuban, you know, uh, cost plus testing company, um, because he's onto something, right. You know, um, the, the, just the, the legacy system, you know, is, has just sort of gotten bigger and, and maybe a little more expensive and, and it definitely is under sort of attack from, you know, startups or, or newer methods. And you're seeing direct primary care and, and all these other mechanisms to try and sort of reduce the cost of healthcare, right? So I, I like what he's up to, um, you know, and if uh, if he's listening, you know, we'll, we'll do his at-home testing platform. But, but uh, like I said, I think, I think you're going to see a wave in the future where there's going to be, you know, a kind of a hybrid model where you're going to sometimes pay out of pocket for certain things. You're going to get your employer to pay for certain things. And then maybe for the most critical life altering, you know, you might have insurance for that too. So, and then of course, obviously we could probably talk about this part for an hour. You need all that data smashed together in one place, right? Because if you're getting, you know, DTC this and physician that and telemedicine that, and they're in five different systems, then then what's the point, right? So. Yeah, definitely. One thing I wanted to ask you, I was just curious what your opinion would be is, why do you think that something like this hasn't been developed before? What like what barriers do you foresee that keeping something from this? Because it seems so intuitive, um, but yet it's been as until now like solutions like yours. It's so complicated to get some of these like you said these simple tests uh, done that are critical for monitoring one's health. And I guess what's kind of do you think? How do you think you guys have been able to offer that as like a, a, a way around any of those barriers that may have existed before? It's, that's, that's a tough question. Um, I, I don't even know that I for sure have all the answers. I mean, you know, we're, we're trying our best and we are making headway. I think if you'd asked me that question before COVID, I would have said, I don't think we've cracked the nut yet. Um, so certainly COVID helped to, you know, empower patients to test themselves. I think that was the first time we really saw that at scale, you know, diabetics who are running tests are, are going to say, well, I, I prick my finger every day and, you know, no problem. But to see, you know, the the government buy what two billion uh, rapid tests meant probably everybody, plus or minus, has done, you know, a, a self collect nasal pharyngeal or uh, sorry, a, a rapid antigen test. So, so I think COVID really accelerated this space. And on top of that, the technology for telemedicine was actually ready at the same time. Basically, the internet, our pipeline the software, the mobile apps, kind of like you had this beautiful convergence of tech being ready at the time as testing was moving into the home for COVID. And now the question is, well, if we did it for COVID, why can't we do it for other potential preventative diseases like just prediabetes? Let's unwind those one third of people who have that A1C we can do just through diet and lifestyle. Um, heart disease, let's go after people who have slightly elevated lipids and triglycerides. We, we don't have to see them in the hospital even. And so I think that's you're seeing a market adoption for that, a consumer adoption because they don't want to go in the hospital and a cost-cutting adoption from the systems that say, hey, we don't want to see these patients if they're generally healthy. So I think we're in this like perfect storm 
um, that necessarily didn't exist before COVID. That's awesome. I'm I'm curious, you know, and you you alluded to this as there's all this data now that you are able to collect from from patients. I guess is there any plans that I'm aware on like tracking that data or providing some type of analysis either for the patients or or kind of maybe even doing some some research studies, if you will. Uh, I'm curious what what you guys are essentially doing with that with the data. <laughs> Well, right now, the easy answer is it's our patient's data. Um, so we don't sell it. We don't sort of mine it. Um, we have a very, you know, I would say probably the best terms of use in the industry around use of patient data. Uh, we are simply stewards of it. We are allowed, of course, to do a kind of anonymized, de-anonymized uh, research on it. And one thing we did learn when we were doing some uh, a COVID study where we had patient opt-in in Houston, for example, uh, people who had... Uh, symptomatic COVID also happened to have some other elevated biomarkers that consistently showed up. And especially two years ago, um, that was sort of news to everybody because nobody obviously knew about COVID. But you started to hear about these words cytokines and then IL-6. And, you know, we supported a study of of 500 plus patients in, in around the Houston area. Um, and when they had severely symptomatic COVID, you know, over 14 days of positive symptoms and, and PCR tests, they cont- demonstrated these higher IL-6 cytokines. So those are types of insights now that that's been published in, I think, Nature and JAMA too, that IL-6 is a predictor of severity and mortality in COVID. Um, so, you know, you're starting to see that when you have bigger data sets like that, you can marry them up in interesting ways. And so I think we're going to see a lot of that um, you know, kind of in the next five years and we want to play our part, right? Um, you know, one thing I certainly see, and I'll just do a little shout out to my friends at whoop is, you know, the the connection between HRV and cortisol, and then, you know, all the other markers of health inside that whoop doesn't measure. So when I'm getting better HRV, I see my cortisol dropping. I see, you know, male testosterone improving. So, you know, there's, these things are all connected. And it'd be great if we didn't have all these disparate systems measuring them and sort of independently making statements about them. It would be really nice if it was all connected. So that's that's our job is to just contribute where we can. And, you know, maybe it's a Apple-led ecosystem or maybe it is an iMore-led ecosystem that one day is able to consume all this and continue to make recommendations. That's really interesting, especially the comment about the immune system. I think, you know, I think we're just scratching the surface, if you will, with what immune markers can tell us and all these different interleukins and cytokines and everything. And I'm curious what, if you guys have any kind of like labs that or labs that you're beta testing in that regard, like, you know, things that you're looking at to, you know, say, Hey, like these aren't really regular uh, measured, but you know, these could be, you know, very useful for monitoring people's health. Yeah. I think the two that I continue to be most excited about for the future, obviously is the one we chatted about lipoprotein A, um, it's a hidden independent risk factor for heart disease. Uh, Bob Harper from that biggest loser show had a sudden heart attack at the gym. He was in great shape. Lipids seemed fine. And he had a heart attack at the gym and, and he, be, you know, it ended up that he had elevated LPA and he became a, you know, pretty outspoken proponent for LPA testing. Um, so, you know, where we can help in that space, uh, we will definitely be doing our part. And then another one I think is, uh, you know, one of our other PhDs has just been looking at IL-6 for a few years now. And um, it it sort of seems to be around all the time and where where it's, you know, above sort of normal ranges, um, disease seems to manifest, you know. So I think there's something there. Now, 
we have to also be careful to bring out actionable reports, right? So, you know, if um, like CRP, for example, if you sort of cut your finger open or you have heart disease risk factor, your HSCRP can be high. So that can be misleading in a way because it's not always sensitive enough to, to a certain function. Um, so that that's what we need to sort of make sure we get a good enough study set on. Um, and that's why we like to partner with B2B companies who have lots of either experience or data or knowledge in that condition that they're actioning. So we can support them in that. Interesting. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I'm curious, you know, you, you touched on this a little bit, but I'm, you know, especially any like budding entrepreneurs in this space out there, I imagine you, you had to go through some regulatory hurdles, I guess, from the regulatory end, maybe kind of walk us through, I imagine like HIPAA was a thing, was something you had to contend with. And then, you know, I'm, I imagine there were some other, in healthcare, there's always regulatory hurdles involved. So I'm curious, like what the main ones were you guys dealt with and how you overcame those? Yeah. Um, well, healthcare is not an area where you can kind of apply Silicon Valley thinking. Um, as much as I love the idea of an MVP and, you know, let, let's let our customers break it and then we fix it and improve it. I mean, that certainly I used to do that for a lot of, of my career as a product manager. But in healthcare, I learned pretty quickly, thanks to some, again, great doctors and lawyers. They're like, you know, you can get away with something <laughs> for five months but then, you know, the federal government's got reach and, and they can go back in time and, and you can go to jail. So, you know, we we took those very seriously. And I'm really glad I got that guidance right from the start. And obviously, we were highly educated on what happened with Theranos. And, and so to that end, um, you know, we kind of built it into the DNA of the company to always be above what I would call the regulatory standard. So you've got CLIA on the lab side. They mandate a certain standard we wanted to use cap accredited labs. So that automatically, you know, just has a higher quality to the lab processing, uh, higher, more stringent requirements, you know, more audits, things like that. So that's the lab side. And that's generally governed by CMS. Um, so that's the federal government arm there. Obviously the FDA looks at things um, from a patient experience perspective. Uh, we've gotten a few letters from them and, you know, we've always kept our language and tone in line with what cl clinicians would say. So, you know, they have been, pretty responsive to saying things like, Hey, you know, you're saying this on your website, we'd prefer if you said that. And, and again, that, that's no problem. We don't need anybody at the FDA saying, you know, that we're making false claims that goes against what we're up to. And then, you know, the states themselves also have requirements like California and New York have more stringent requirements than many of the other states out there. So I think the the best thing that I learned in the advice I was given was try not to meet the minimum standard. Um, because you're just going to find yourself in this position of not necessarily building for the for the right outcome. So we strive to beat that minimum outcome and always adhere to the to this more stringent outcome. So even when it came to HIPAA, HIPAA is just sort of a guidance. You know, like when people say they're they're HIPAA certified or HIPAA accredited, I mean there's there's not really like an audit you go through. You have to self-report these things. So we decided to go and get SOC 2 type 2 compliance, which is sort of like HIPAA on steroids. And you get an auditor, you know, who's independent, who comes and just beats up your systems and processes and everything. And, you know, there's an example of where I wonder if one day, you know, they might sort of put HIPAA onto a little bit of steroids and say, you know, we've got all these digital companies out there. And I don't know if we should just have MVP patient portals out there without any password protection, you know, might be a bit exaggerating there, but my my guidance to entrepreneurs is um, there's a lot of great resources out there. I'm here. There's a lot of us who've gone through this. Um, it doesn't have to be hard. 
but I do recommend sort of making that investment of of building a culture and DNA of of excellence, not just the minimum standard. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You said going kind of above and beyond because then you're not only does it make you a better you know company and a better product, but also you know ensures you're not you know maybe you made it in this kind of requirement. Then you said you know you noticed that like California and New York had even higher requirements in some states. So I imagine that would have added more time and more inefficiencies having to go back and you know, make adjustments for that. So that's, that, that's pretty cool. I'm curious from the, like the legal standpoint, like I imagine you probably met with, in addition to the regulatory aspects, you probably had to meet with a lot of lawyers about this. Like, for example, if, you know, a patient gets a test done and like, they don't look at it for, you know, say they forget about it and they don't look at it for two months. And if they had looked at it, it would have saved their life. Or I realize that's probably an extreme example, but you know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, any type of like medical liability here, if that, I wonder if that, came into play at all or, or if any of those types of issues were came into play? Definitely. I mean, the words on the report that we designed were literally critiqued down to placement of comma of, you know, the word recommend versus consult versus, you know, you should and what is our obligation versus your obligation in terms of acceptance. Like the entire workflow had to be legally reviewed because as much as we want to help people, you're absolutely right. Exceptions happen, right? What happens if somebody doesn't get an email or God forbid goes to spam and they had relied on a home test because they couldn't afford a normal test. We've heard of some pretty crazy scenarios. Um, We've dealt with some personally where we're just scenarios you could never predict. And so we had built again, a legal construct that was sort of just really, really solid. And uh, you know, then you also have insurance, you know, to protect you from the things you possibly couldn't have seen coming and you just try your best. And, um, you know, so it's kind of a function of all of that, right? Good regulatory support, good legal support, good insurance, um, using outside doctors and physicians who are trained in these capabilities and these clinical protocols so that we don't get ourselves in trouble. Right. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think kind of going on that, you know, when you, I imagine when you were getting people involved and going on the fundraising, uh, you know, going through the fundraising stages and things like that. People probably asked you, you know, how is this different than Theranos or, oh man, is this another Theranos that's coming our way? Like, I guess I'm curious how you, how you mitigated those, those critiques or, I realize you, you've hit on some of those points already that, you know, you use separate labs, you're not building, you know, in-house machines and things like that. But I'm wondering if there were any other like ways where you kind of distance yourself from that from that company. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. In in 2017, that was such a big deal to investors. And kind of now since COVID, like 2020, uh, I've been talking to investors and it's like that Theranos word doesn't exist anymore. I think COVID really got a lot of people believing that small volume testing platforms, you know, can work. Of course, COVID was a, you know, kind of a plus minus sign on on a nasal swab. So that's very different than a quantitative you know, cholesterol panel. Um, but still, it, it, it instilled confidence that small volume testing could work. No, the way we did it back in 2017 was, um, it's kind of like own the narrative. I I, uh, <laughs> I think about, you know, eight miles rap battle at the end. <laughs> Have you ever saw that? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and at the end, you know, Eminem comes out and basically says everything that they're going to say against him. And then they have nothing to say, right? And so I learned that as an investor pitch, we were getting hit with all these questions. And so I rejigged the investor pitch. So that slide one was, we are not Theranos, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. 
And it was amazing because then they're like, all right, well, we got that out of the way. So now let's chat. So it's kind of like coming out and owning the narrative. And at first, you know, as a, as a early entrepreneur, you're kind of like, you know, you, you, you want to sort of let them guide the conversation. But the best thing I ever did, again, someone told me was just go in and own the narrative. And so what we talked about was independent doctors. Uh, we would use third-party labs that were at least CLIA certified, you know, that had clean audit histories. We would define a clinical protocol that would be independently verified by our advisory board members that this test, this biomarker, these reports, this language is applicable in a clinical setting. We would even strive to publish in peer review, and we did. We put our data methods and know-how on our first test, celiac disease, into CCLM, which is a global uh, uh, clinical chemistry magazine. So basically, we listed out those bullet points and more around how we would strive to be different and better. And uh, yeah, that went a long way because it, these investors became aware that we were aware of all of those problems. And um, so they became more comfortable right off the bat. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I'm curious, you know, it sounds like you've, you've been through a couple of rounds of fundraising now. It sounds like I'm curious where you are at as maybe as a company, like kind of where you're, what stage you guys are at both fundraising and then just even in general of kind of in the, the grand scheme of things and then where you're kind of hoping to go in that next step, if you will. Yeah, we, uh, we've, we've done a couple of rounds of fundraising, kind of like the seed and series A type. Um, so that's where we're at now. The next one is, is probably in the next six to nine months around a growth round uh, as the economy sort of figures itself out as COVID really does finally hopefully go away. Uh, as people turn to wellness, as we're seeing, more and more people are becoming proactive and wellness oriented. Uh, we think there's just going to be a, a huge takeoff of, of at-home testings to support all of those use cases. And uh, so, yeah, we'll be doing a growth round, you know, probably by or before the end of Q1 uh, of next year. And I think from an industry perspective, um, this is the start of consumerism of healthcare. Um, it's probably going to take a decade when you think about it. It's going to start with some easy wins, like what the wearables are doing and helping you just get better sleep, maybe exercising a little more and, you know, just being able to, to track some of those super basic things will make huge improvements in a lot of lives and then augment that with what we're doing, you know, kind of standard testing, your annual testing that maybe most people don't do, but now, you know, they almost have no excuse to it's affordable. It's at home. It's accessible. It's, you know, really small volumes. So you might see more and more people do those things so they can get in front of things like high triglycerides or high A1C. And, you know, I think that's, that's where it's going to go over the next couple of years. Then you'll see all of that data smashed together and, you know, some kind of Apple Health Kit uh, mobile app that just gives you this beautiful experience where you're measuring all of this stuff and getting like, you know, telemedicine specialty care, you know, on your iPhone. And uh, I think that's just like, it's just going to keep evolving, you know, like a, like a classic Apple, right? It's like Apple, 12, you know, the iPhone 12 was always that much better than the previous, but it was, it really wasn't, right? It was just a little bit better every time. And I think that's what you're going to see in the next decade is like this healthcare at home thing every year is just going to get a little bit better. And then one day you'll look back and be like, I can't believe I didn't have that, you know, so long ago. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point. I agree with you. I think it's going to move. I don't think televet telemedicine or, you know, at home medicine is really, I think that's something that's going to probably be a positive, you know, byproduct of the pandemic. I think both at home testing, you're even seeing new gadgets where people can, you know, doctors can do physical exams via telemedicine visits. So 
I think you could even see these fully, these virtual clinics or at least hybrid virtual clinics. And I think something what you're providing, like what you're providing is, you know, a critical step with that. You can't do doctor's visits, maybe unless you're like a psychiatrist or something without, you know, monitoring lab values. I'm curious how, you know, as patients and and then, and as their physicians try to, you know, more closely monitor and get more data, you know, is, are you seeing some labs being drawn more? I mean, obviously if it's normal, it's normal. There's nothing really to follow up on until the next year, but are you seeing more kind of regular monitoring going on, you know, with, with some of the, you know, now that you've made this much more available to the patients at home, I, I would imagine that would kind of help with, you know, if they're doing a different diet or something, you know, or taking a new medication, being able to follow up, like you said, biomarkers for whether that's working or not. Well, the the one thing what you said there about um, testing at home, I just saw a doctor say something on LinkedIn, which was uh, labs are a way of of proving something, of diagnosing. And so if you're talking to a doctor who doesn't have your labs, they're basically hypothesizing on your health. And I was like, oh, that's that's actually really interesting, right? So a doctor's statement without a lab is simply a hypothesis. Um, a doctor's statement with a lab is a diagnosis, right? So it, it was just an interesting way to, that somebody had said that on LinkedIn. But, um, you know, more broadly uh, to your question, where we're seeing the biggest uptick in terms of people testing and the quantity of tests and the frequency change is really in kind of cardiometabolic um, because people are starting to realize that they can improve that at home, you know, through a combination of diet, lifestyle, exercise, and sleep. So think of kind of, again, your classic lipid panel, bolt on an A1C, a CRP, an insulin, and all of those kind of work in, in conjunction with each other. And as you start to exercise, as you start to tackle that A1C, you know, maybe reduce your carbohydrates a little bit, reduce your sugars a bit, glucose goes down, trends down, A1C trends down, insulin trends down, then your insulin resistance improves. Um, you know, so we're seeing a lot of people on cardiometabolic centric panels and where people used to test that maybe once every other year, you're starting to see people say, Hey, I wouldn't mind testing that annually. Or if I'm going aggressively on an improvement program, I'd like to test even twice a year so that I can really see and track those improvements. Um, so again, if we continue to, you know, make that test easier to use, continue to try and drive that cost down you'll see people start to monitor that more because those markers will respond in 90 days. That's amazing. I mean, I think it's like you said, it's it's taking a more proactive, kind of what we were, we were talking about in the beginning of the conversation. You know, so much of healthcare, as you know, firsthand is such, it's so reactive. It's such a, a, you know, it's a kind of a buzzword or that's kind of be dead at this point, but it's still what relevant is, is the sick care model versus the healthcare model. Um, I think this really helps with the healthcare model, people taking control of their own health and then, you know, monitoring. And, and, you know, it's the thing about one lab value is it's one point in time versus if they can have like regular, uh, follow-ups like this, or have even just like you said, maybe more than just once a year, I think that could really dramatically help kind of steer the ship as far as, cause like we were talking about again, in the, in the hospital, I mean, we're, you know, measuring these values almost every day and in, in, in some patients multiple times a day. And that, like you said, lab values are, you know, a definitive, you know, diagnosis or, you know, a definitive picture of what's going on with the patient. And those are guiding management decisions. So why not do this from the same thing from the the home base, if you will? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, you hit a nail on the head there. I was talking to a cardiologist who said, you know, if we lived in a perfect world where tests were cheap and data was, 
you know, all integrated, they would want to start measuring lipids at about 21 years of age so that you get a baseline of, of what that person is. And then what matters less than the absolute number, of course, if the absolute number is really high, then you've got a problem. But what you want to see is, is sort of the trajectory. And if, you know, somebody's got 10% higher, let's say you're just 10% higher than me, but your line has been flat for 20 years. Whereas maybe when I was 21, mine was 30% lower, but now I'm catching up to you. You know, that my curve is actually worrisome more so than yours. But if you just measure the data point last year, you know, yours might come out more worrisome. So you got to look at the trajectory of these things, right? Um, <laughs> a more obvious example is if you just measure a plane in the sky, you don't know if its nose is going straight into the earth or or if it's flying flat. So you really do have to take at least two data points, you know, spread out over a couple of years. And, and especially in these heart disease related ones, a lot of times the symptom is a heart attack, right? You don't feel anything um, until it's almost too late. So really we do, you know, holistically want to get people testing more frequently. It doesn't have to be an eye test. Just go get that earlier baseline test. Now you got something to work with and now you can track over time, right? So I think like the next generation of, of people, you know, coming up are more proactive, are getting these date tests done earlier. Um, it's amazing. I've spoke to a lot of people who have said they've only had one lipid test done in their entire life. There's a lot of people in that boat. Um, and, and so, yeah, those are the types of people we want to help get more data to. Yeah, I think you hit on some really good points there. I mean, one the the trend for sure. Again, you know, in the use it in you know in the hospital example, we're constantly looking at trends. You know, we, you know, I think it's uh, one of those. You know, is it trending down? Is it trending up? What's it doing? And I think you make an excellent point that you know someone staying at the same value over twenty years, you know, versus someone who's steadily going up and up and up. You know, that's I think that's something to pay attention to for sure. Um, I think also it it also probably creates a makes it more real for somebody. Like you said, right now what happens unfortunately is maybe they get one lipid panel, it doesn't look so great. Their doctor tells them to change their their behavior. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. <laughs> and then five, 10 years later, unfortunately, they're in the emergency room with chest pain and they either, you know, they have a heart attack. And, you know, that may be the impetus at that point to change. But, you know, what would have been better is if, you know, they had more access to being able to, you know, see that, you know, this is actually real. This is like you said, you can't, unless you have a heart attack, you don't feel it, you know, it's kind of too late at that point. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I imagine this also being a great driver for behavior change, if you will, in some ways. <laughs> yep. Yep. And, uh, you know, I'm glad we live in a world where we're so connected and you're seeing more and more experts come out and become digitally connected through health coach networks and things like that. So people are getting the best advice and, and that advice is scaling out there. Uh, which is great. So yeah, I think this is just the start of, of kind of, like I said, the consumerization of healthcare and, and, uh, you know, significantly more focus on prevention versus sort of that sick care, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it also goes along with, <clears throat> I've had some friends that use like the whoop or the, the Fitbit and, you know, like attracts your sleep. And like, if they went out, you know, partying one night and they see like how much that, you know, affected their sleep and they think, oh man, like, I didn't realize that, you know, it's, uh, you know, alcohol affects my my sleep in that way. And I'm like, yeah, guys, like <laughs> it's not may have had a good time that night, but it's not ideal for your your sleep pattern. <laughs> yeah. Um it, it at least like I think wakes people up to a little bit about like, you know, what's going on inside of them versus just, you know, when things are, you know, kind of at that end point, like you said. <laughs> 
Yep. Well, it's funny. I, so yeah, I wear the whoop and now I've learned if originally when I didn't know this, I would have like four cups of coffee after going out the night before. And then I'd be like, Oh, I feel fine. But that's caffeine doing what caffeine does, which is blocking my body's desire to go to bed, you know? So the next day I'd stay up till midnight again. And now the whoop's like, no, 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 go to bed at eight 30 tonight. Cause you had like, you know, zero recovery the night before. And, and, and cut that coffee off, stop that last cup at noon and go to bed properly. And then, yeah, you wake up the next day feeling like a champ now. So yeah, these are little insights that, you know, you, we didn't know about five, 10 years ago. We just sort of said power through with caffeine. Right. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think you also hit a good point there that, you know, feeling good and having good health, it's a lot of like good, small, good steps over time, you know, and I'm even learning this you know, myself as I try, as I get older and try to take care, better care of myself is, uh, it's a lot of small steps done, right. It's not, you know, one big step one day and then you're, then you're done. It's, uh, it's, and I think, you know, I'm aware and, and other products like that, we're kind of helping giving you more data, more knowledge, if you will, of how your body is doing it, uh, definitely help play a role in that for sure. Yeah, you're totally right. A lot of little baby steps. And and it doesn't mean you can't, you know, go and, you know, break the mold or have fun or go out one night. It, it just means if you're going to do that, you know, be you'll be aware of the impacts of that, right? And then you may do that a little less frequently, or you might balance it out better, right? Or, you know, one, one to two glasses of wine instead of, you know, four, four or five shots of Mark Cuban's tequila. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I think, we, we, we touched a little bit on this in the conversation, but I guess, you know, what are, you know, I know you offer a lot of labs, like you said, in, in cardio metabolic area, you know, men's and women's health, which I think is, is also critical to, um, you know, people monitoring their own health and, and, you know, just giving them a sense of their health. What, you know, we touched a little bit on the immune markers. What are kind of some of the labs you're, you're really excited about that you're hoping to roll out maybe in the next, you know, six to 12 months or so, uh, that you're kind of testing out. If you can comment on that, maybe I realize maybe some yeah. some of those you may not be able to, but well, a, a more broad thyroid panel um, and, and hormones in general. You know, insulin um, is just becoming prevalent as as a marker to measure, and it causes insulin resistance, which drives up all these other conditions. So, kind of bringing those markers into more of our mainstream panels uh, to add that you know, augmented information. Like I mentioned, it's not so much about the one marker in one point of time. It's like, let's take a look at a family of markers and, and how they're sort of messing up with each other, right? So as, for example, most people probably know this, but maybe they don't, but as cortisol goes up and, and you're in this fight or flight and you're anxious and stressed out, for men, that's bad because that actually affects your testosterone. And so testosterone starts to, you know, go down and then you start to add some weight and then maybe your triglycerides go up. So, you know, these things sort of snowball together. So the thing we're focused on at IMOR is actually measuring, you know, kind of multiple biomarkers, multiplexing that together so that you can actually have a little bit more of a total picture. Um, we did initially start out kind of with those one, one or two biomarker tests, and they just weren't offering enough breadth, breadth and depth of data. So a majority of our tests, you know, for the kind of coming year or two is going to focus on expanding what can be done out of a patient sample, right? So if we're going to ask them to lancet themselves and, and to draw out a sample, that's the perfect time to draw out two more biomarkers, right? So we're, we're going to definitely try to uh, make sure that we optimize these panels for, for the blood that we are asking for those patients. And then I think the one that I'm, that I'm really excited by is we are working with a partner where I think we can bring some rapid testing 
uh, to market over the kind of one to two year time frame in some of these areas. So imagine that you could do a, a rapid test for inflammation um, or a rapid test for triglycerides or LDL. And, you know, that you could just get the answer in 15 minutes. And if it's positive, then you follow up with a quantified, you know, lab or IMOware report to figure out what your number is. And those tests could be, you know, 19 bucks instead of $800 so that you can, as a, as a person trying to understand if they even have a health concern, they could test more frequently. So kind of think about bringing rapid tests and lab tests together to play this role of screening and diagnostic diagnostics together. Um, we're definitely going to be focused in that area to, to help customers get access to that kind of right test at the right time. That'd be, that'd be amazing if you could, uh, have an answer like that. So vast. I mean, even if you, uh, even the best labs out there, you gotta, you know, often I think wait a day or so even to get kind of your, your, your results. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, giving yourself even that immediate feedback, especially in this day and age where everyone wants their answer yesterday. Uh, I think <laughs> I'm sure you would have a lot of interest for that as well. And then again, like you said, hitting on the, you know, insulin and, and thyroid and things like that. I think, again, these are just, you know, common, but, you know, problems that people, you know, I think, you know, I'm sure like endocrinology, I mean, they're always looking at different, you know, lab values, hormone levels, all that type of thing, all those types of things, uh, manage, helping manage those care, I think would be paramount to, you know, helping those doctors, you know, take better care of their patients for sure. I think that's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's, uh, and like I said, I think in the grand scheme of things, we're just getting started. There's so much data to unlock. Um, and there's so much, like one thing I think people are realizing more and more is we've been treating the biomarker, right? So if, if you have LDL, you know, here's how we're going to treat LDL. We're going to lower it and, and do this thing. But what if the heart was multifaceted and it was a combination of 20 markers and the trends on those markers, and it included inflammation and genetic risk factors and cholesterols. And we could actually measure the cholesterol, right? That you probably know this, but LDL most of the time is calculated um, by taking total and subtracting HDL and a ratio of triglycerides. But what if we could start to really measure that stuff in our body? Um, we might realize that some people, you know, have good cholesterol measures and numbers, and other people actually who thought they had good numbers may not have such good numbers, right? So I think the idea for us is just to keep driving into measuring more and more and more. I think we're going to unlock, back to your earlier question around trends and insights and data, I think we're going to learn a lot about, uh, you know, where we used to make sweeping generalizations, um, you know, like BMI is under attack right now as, as not being necessarily a good biomarker to look at and make opinions on. And I think you're going to see the same thing with some of these other bar biomarkers where we just used to say globally, like if you had this LDL, you were in trouble. And yes, we definitely have to manage cholesterol, but I wonder if there's more data we can use to make better decisions or more personalized decisions around your heart care. Right. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I'm wondering, have you, have you guys looked into any of these like cancer biomarkers out there? Obviously like PSA, you know, is, is a major one, but I think like PSA is used, you know, not only as a screening, but you know, as a, a treatment response, you know, and I think, you know, there's other biomarkers out there as I'm sure you're aware of that, you know, cancer doctors will use. I'm curious if you guys have, you know, looked into do, working with those at all. Cause I think, you know, having cancer patients being, they have to go through enough. If they could just, you know, test those at home, that would make, I think one, just a better experience for them. And then if, you know, help uh, probably would be more helpful for their doctor as well. And also improve compliance uh, with following those trends. Right. Like you said, you know, the, 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 the cancer word scares me a little bit in the sense that there still is tests like no test is perfect. None of them. They're going to have 
you know, sensitivity and specificity or precision and accuracy problems, one or 0.1%. And uh, in an at-home setting, especially if somebody's got a fear of cancer, you know, I think right now for I'm aware, we, we think that that patient is better handled with the care of a physician in person. Um, cancer is, you know, it's, it's hard to know what stage you're in. So I just think there's so much unknown there, but I love what's happening in liquid biopsy. I do think there's going to be a time where maybe we can partner up with a liquid biopsy company um, that has developed excellent science and maybe we can help deploy and scale that out into an at-home setting, potentially, like you said, at first for monitoring um, and, and then potentially for screening or, or flip it around and say, hey, this is a screening test only. And everybody who's positive actually gets a guaranteed consult where physicians will call till you answer. Like we're going to have to build a protocol that's uh, to your earlier point, like very compliant above and beyond the legal minimums. Cause that would be uh yeah, it's just, it's just a scarier word. Um, and, and we'd have to have absolutely top tier service for that. So, yeah, but I, I think again, you're going to see more and more, the more we know about these conditions, the better we can bring things into the home. So. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So as we close things out, I just want to uh, give you a chance to tell both, I guess, customers and also physicians, like how they can, you know, begin using this both, you know, patients themselves and then how physicians can, you know, recommend it to their patients and how, how it all works with, you know, signing up and, you know, getting, getting your labs drawn and everything like that. Yeah. We're at imaware.health. We got great SEO at imaware or at home testing. Uh, you'll see imaware. It was actually a patient who named us. Uh, I was telling the story about building health awareness and the person said, oh, I'm aware. And so, you know, that was how we got named. It was great to be named by a patient. Um, in the coming year, we're going to be making uh, connectivity to uh, several healthcare systems that we know are deployed across tens of thousands of physician offices, which means I'm aware could be available to order inside of a, of a physician platform like that. So think of a requisition today for some physicians, you know, going telling the patient to go to a LabCorp request draw station. Now the requisition could say, Hey, you know, if, if you want to pay the copay of 35 bucks for the at-home convenience kit, you'll get a, you'll get an iMore kit. So we're going to try and integrate that into the experience so that patients have choice in that matter. Um, and of course we're working with health systems who want to deploy this more globally into monitoring scenarios uh, so that that patient doesn't have to drive for an hour <laughs> to go and do a standard test. So we've definitely been working with health systems to do, to help them think about deploying, you know, proofs of concept like that. That's very cool. Very cool. Um, <laughs> so Yanni, I, I ask every guest this, I want to ask you this. Uh, what do you do to to find that balance when you're not busy working on uh, building I'm aware? Uh, how do you find that balance if there is one? <laughs> <laughs> uh, kids are great. I got a two and a five-year-old. Uh, so spending time with my family is is always an amazing thing. You know, we're here trying to continue our health and longevity so that we can be there for others. So definitely love time with my kids. Uh, exercise, the whoops got me back into exercise. It uh, it tells me that I you know shouldn't be sandbagging my exercises, <laughs> uh, which is great. And, uh, you know, I tried to get out and travel in the last year uh, since COVID just to reconnect with friends and family. So yeah, just really focusing on the, on the friends and family part right now. That's awesome. Well, Yanni, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy day. And I really commend you and your colleagues. I mean, you guys have really built a great company here. I mean, especially I commend you for, you know, going above and beyond the, you know, the, the efforts to make sure that everything's, you know, compliant and by the book and uh, just providing, you know, top quality uh, care to these patients. I, I really commend you guys for that. So thank you again. Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, it was such a great chat. I really enjoyed this conversation. So 
And if, uh, you know, if there's anybody, you know, in your community who wants to reach out, um, you can definitely find me on LinkedIn. My name's Yanni. I'm probably the only one there, or you can find me on the iMore website too. But I, I love chatting with people who want to get into the business, who want to, you know, physicians, especially who want to become more digitally engaged or, you know, start to share their knowledge um, or other entrepreneurs who are just looking for guidance on how to crack into healthcare. So yeah, I'm definitely here for the community. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. We appreciate it. You got it. Well, have a great day. Great rest of the day. And we'll talk soon again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour podcast presented by DaVinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.